0: But it is great to be here. It's great to, to gather. My name is Christopher. If we haven't met before, I'm one of the teaching pastors here at River West. You're going to want a Bible this morning, so ushers are going to go around. You can raise your hand. We'll get a Bible in your hands this morning. And I'm so grateful for, for guests and newcomers that are joining us because you're joining our church, obviously, at a really exciting season around here. In fact, I want to remind you that next Sunday we're going to be having an all church worship service. An all church worship service. Some of you have never even met the 11 o'clock crowd. You might find your new best friend actually next week. We're going to be combining our normal 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. services, pulling them all together in a 10 a.m. service. Here's what you can expect okay, there's going to be worship, there's going to be teaching. We're going to have a baptism with a testimony, honestly, it's one of the most powerful testimonies of conversion and faith I've heard in years, just to like make you completely, completely sold on turning out, a testimony that is so beautiful, so God-glorifying. And if that doesn't get you, we're also going to be hiring a cold brew coffee expert there's going to be cold-brewed coffee, okay, if you're making a list, Kona-shaved ice for the kiddos or the adults that actually need a shot of sugar. And there's child care for people that have kiddos zero to two. You can sign up online. It's going to be amazing. This is one of those times in the season of our church, if you wanted to extend an invitation to neighbors or coworkers or family members, this would be an amazing time to do it. And here's what you can expect if you do. For the next two weeks, we're going to be examining what Jesus has to say about the church. Jesus' view of the church. And so maybe perhaps people are reluctant to come to church, to check out church. This is going to be an examination this week and next week, looking at the words of Christ, what he says about church. The church. And I don't think it comes as a surprise to any of us today, if we're being honest, that people's perception of the church in our day and age are not, by and large, positive. In fact, according to a recent LifeWay research study that I came across, people's trust and confidence in the church in our country, in America, is at an all-time Low. You can see the graph right there. This is the type of stuff that depresses pastors right here, which hasn't always been the case. People's trust and confidence in churches is waning, where in even just the 1970s, seven out of 10 people would say, you know what, I have confidence in church. I see church as a positive thing, and I trust the church. I trust churches, where today... Only 37% of people polled have confidence in the church and see it in a positive light. But guess what? Here's what you need to know this morning. Even though confidence in the church is waning, trust has been broken, Jesus has not lost his confidence in the church. In fact, he's building his church, and the church is precious to Jesus. Amen? But all of this, it begs an honest question, an appropriate question. In a day and age where more and more people are losing confidence in church and leaving the church, giving up on church, where do we turn? Well, here at River West, we turn to the illuminated words of Jesus Christ that are alive with truth and hope. When our confidence is waning and we're wrestling with doubts, we turn to the words of of Christ for clarity and confidence on all matters of faith and life. Amen. And if you've been following along the last couple weeks, we're in this summer series that we're calling What the Son of God Said. And today we're going to be turning to Matthew's gospel, the first book in the New Testament, as we look at what the Son of God said about the church of God. So turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16, as we take in this profound glimpse into Jesus' word, Jesus' perspective, Jesus' confidence in his church. We're going to jump in right at verse 13 this morning. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's word. The passage that we read together this morning captures one of the most pivotal, divine, holy moments in Jesus' life and ministry. And while we could easily preach an entire sermon series just from this passage today, I want us to look carefully at three things that Jesus' words clarify about the church for us. So if you're taking notes, here's the three things that Jesus' words reveal and make crystal clear for us. Jesus' words reveal what the church is, what the church is built on, and what the church is built on. For. Jesus' words, in other words, reveal what the church is, the nature of the church. Jesus' words reveal what the church is built on, the foundation of the church. And Jesus' words reveal what the church is built for the church's purpose and mission in the world. First and foremost, Jesus' words in this passage show us what the church is. It's worth noticing in this passage and not reading over this too quickly that Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to build my club. He doesn't say, I'm going to build my brand. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to build my political base or I'm going to build my YouTube channel and online followers. Instead, Jesus, the son of the living God says, I will build my church. Did you know that this is actually the first mention of the word church in the New Testament? The word church shows up over a hundred times, 110 times actually, to be exact, in the book of Acts, the epistles, and other letters. But it's the first occurrence right here in Matthew 16. We just read it. And although you and I are accustomed to hearing the word church, it's easy And and perhaps without us even knowing, we tend to bring our preconceived religious speculations and preconceptions of what this term means to a text like this when we read the word church. Now, case in point, when most people hear the term church, they typically associate the word church with a place where people gather to worship to read scripture, to hear sermons, and to pray. Because the English word church has a number of meanings. Most, if not all, are religious. But here's what might come as a shock to you. The Greek term for church and the Aramaic equivalent of the word church weren't religious terms at all. The Greek word that Jesus uses in this text here for church, very specifically, he uses this designation on purpose. The word ekklesia in Greek wasn't originally a religious term. And Jesus could have used a whole host of religious terms. Jesus could have said, I'm going to build my temple, or I'm going to build my tabernacle. But Jesus says, I'm going to build my ekklesia, my church. But it wasn't a religious term. Originally, it was a secular term that was coined by the Greco-Roman government. You see, in ancient Greece, an ekklesia was an assembly of people who'd gather to vote on laws Decide military strategy, discuss philosophy, and elect magistrates, leaders. The term itself, ekklesia, means a summoned or called out assembly. Literally, the word just means called out or summoned, and it came to mean a called out or summoned assembly of citizens from city-states. So that's what churches were. Groups of citizens from around the Greco-Roman Empire who'd gather in places like this. We have a photo, and archaeologists and historians have found documents that that show that a church met right here in this theater, dating back to the 4th century. Churches would meet in theaters like this. This is a much larger ecclesia in Athens, in the theater of Dionysus the god of wine and ecstasy in Greco-Roman pagan religion, on the south slope right there of the massive Acropolis Hill. So you can go, and what you need to know is there was ecclesias like this scattered throughout the Greco-Roman Empire. Super fascinating. And so when Jesus subversively and intentionally used this term, ecclesia. Church, people in the first century wouldn't have envisioned religious places where people were worshiping and praying in temples. They would have thought of places like this assemblies where people gathered to discuss philosophy, Greco Roman laws. However, here's what happened. In the first century, the Caesars, the kings in Rome, governing officials, realized that their citizens obeyed their laws much better when they worship them as gods, okay? So ecclesias became places where Greco-Roman citizens would gather to worship the emperor, to worship Caesar, who claimed to be a god, to hear Caesar's decree, learn Caesar's philosophy, and live out his ways as citizens of the Greco-Roman empire. Enter Jesus of Nazareth. And perhaps this sheds light on why Jesus stirred up so much controversy wherever he went and proclaimed, I will build my ecclesia. I will build my church, my assembly of citizens who are summoned and called out to worship me to learn my decrees and live out my ways as citizens of my kingdom. And unlike Caesar's Ecclesia, Caesar's church, Jesus' church would be an everlasting assembly that would spread into all nations and usher in the kingdom of God that would restore everything that was broken and turn the world Upside down. That's what church is, according to Jesus. In fact, here's a definition church is not a building or an institution or a social group. The church that Jesus is talking about here is an assembly of summoned, called out people who gather to worship Jesus, learn his truths and live out his ways as citizens of his kingdom. When we talk about church, that's the working definition that Jesus was assuming. That's church. You know, it dawned on me as I was digging into the subversive historical context of Jesus claim in this passage This week that you and I are actually living in an age where many churches today are quite frankly becoming assemblies of emperor worship. With the rise of religious nationalism, this is a sad truth to say, but many churches today are far more devoted to discussing elected officials or political ideologies than time devoted to magnifying Jesus. Friends, make eye contact and hear this loud and clear. There is only one church that we are concerned in being a part of and building here at River West Church, and it's not Caesar's church or any elected officials church. It's the church that Jesus is Lord and builder of. Amen? Amen. Amen. Because Jesus is possessive. He's possessive. He says, no, 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 no. I'm calling you out. I'm summoning you to me. You're going to be my assembly of called out citizens. Don't live like Caesar's citizens. You're mine. You're my church. That's what church is. Second, after showing us and designating, this is what church is. Jesus actually shows us in this passage What the church is built for. What is the church built? I'm sorry, what is the church built on? What is the foundation of the church? Isn't it true that no matter how incredible or magnificent a structure is, it really doesn't ultimately matter unless it's built on a solid, sure foundation? Isn't that true? You know, one of the most infamous examples of this is the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Arguably one of the most famous structures in the world, not simply because of its ornate architecture and its rising arches, but because of its legendary tilt. Construction on the tower began in 1173, and it took nearly two centuries of craftsmanship and designed to come up with this. But before the first three levels were actually completed, they realized, "Uh uh-oh, Houston, we have a problem. Because it began to tilt ever so slightly, but they noticed it. But they were already three stories in. You don't want to tell your supervisor, "Uh, I think we have a problem. It gradually began leaning further and further over the centuries. It now has a 17-foot lean. It's considered one of the most lopsided structures in the world. In fact, I didn't know this, but er, in the early 2000s, they had to shut the whole thing down because they were worried. Do you see that building on the right? There's like a little restaurante over there. They were like, it's going to fall and kill people, and it's going to kill the pasta restaurant and like everything. It's going to fall on the restaurante. And so they shut it down and they actually spent $25 million, and they had to reinforce and stop the tilt of the Leaning power, Tower of Pisa. So what's the problem with the Leaning Tower of Pisa? This is not a complicated question. It's not bad design. It's not poor workmanship. It's not an inferior grade of marble. No, The problem was what was underneath. The sandy soil on which the city of Pisa was built on wasn't stable enough to support a monument of this size. The tower had no firm foundation. And sadly, I think the same thing can be said of so many churches and so many followers of Christ. Today. If the last two years have revealed anything, and it's revealed a lot, it has fundamentally exposed the foundations that our lives are built upon. Pain has a way of doing that, of showing you, revealing to you, whether you want to see it or not, what your life is built on. And the foundation matters. Because the structure cannot stand unless it's built on a firm foundation. And you know what? No one knew this truth better than Jesus. Which is why he ends his famous Sermon on the Mount with a parable of two builders. You'll know this parable, many of you, but to refresh your memory, um, I want you to notice Jesus is going to use the same word picture of foundation and rock that we're going to see in Matthew 16. So take in... The words of Christ, Matthew chapter 7, if you turn to the left in Matthew's gospel, he ends the Sermon on the Mount classically with a parable that contrasts two builders building on two different foundations. Jesus said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Same word that we see in Matthew 16. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sands. And the rain fell, the floods came, winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell And great was the fall of it. In both this parable and Jesus' exchange with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus' concern is exactly the same. He wants to reveal the only sure foundation that will hold up when the rains and floods and winds come. And if you live long enough, everybody gets a turn. The rains always come. Don't they? You live long enough, you live through some floods. You feel the wind. It's a sure promise. Everybody gets their turn. And when the crisis hits, you know what? Sand won't cut it. Unless you want your life to look like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, it must be built on the rock. Now, in the parable that we just read from Jesus, it's crystal clear what the rock is because Jesus tells us it's hearing and doing Jesus' words. In verse 24, he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man, and build his house on the rock. So, exegetically, it's not that complicated. The rock is hearing and doing. The words Jesus has proclaimed. But in Matthew 16, you may not know this. It breaks a law for preachers to uh, introduce a problem or attention you didn't walk in here with. But you need to know this, that over the centuries, dating all the way back, way before the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, there's been a ton of debate and disagreement throughout the centuries in church history As to what the rock is that Jesus is referring to when he says, I will build my church on this rock. So in Matthew 16, 18, this verse we read, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. Prior to the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church believes and still holds to the belief and conviction this day that the rock that Jesus is referring to in this passage is the Apostle Peter. And one of the reasons that our brothers, our Catholic brothers and sisters, hold to this interpretation is connected to a play on words that comes across in the Greek language. In Jesus' interaction with Peter here, where the term for Peter and rock sound really familiar. In fact, in Greek, you'll hear the similarity. Jesus tells Peter, I tell you, you are Petros. You, Peter, are Petros. And upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. So, Petros, Peter. Rock, petra, sound, really familiar. The meanings and the definitions, vastly different. Petros, the word that Jesus uses as a nickname for Peter, it means small, tiny pebble. Tiny pebble. Petra, rock, massive rock, massive. So Jesus is saying, upon you, Peter, tiny pebble, I will build my petra massive rock and the gates of hell won't be able to withstand it. The apostle Peter would have been the first to tell you this morning that he is not the rock that the church is built on. In fact, in one of his letters, he will say that Christ is the cornerstone, that I'm not the foundation, that I'm just one small, tiny pebble and God's sovereign plan to build his living cathedral of reclaimed lives that he calls church. But if Peter's not the rock, then what is this massive stone that Jesus' church is founded upon? Well, to answer this, we first need to take in the context of Jesus' conversation that led up to this exchange with Peter. So if you back up in the passage, this is what we do around here at River West. We pay attention to every word in the scriptures, especially the red letter words of Jesus. Look again in verses 13 to 17 in Matthew 16 and pay attention to the context and what's going on. Matthew 16, back up to verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Cephsarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonas, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. It's clear from this exchange that Jesus Goal is to press a conversation that starts with a question around his identity. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And from the disciples' response, many in the first century apparently thought that Jesus was one of the former Jewish prophets. One of the, the three most famous Hebrew prophets who may have come back from the dead, Elijah, Jeremiah, or John the Baptist, which sounds weird, but the truth is is that Jesus' ministry bared a lot in common with all three of these Old Testament prophets. Like John the Baptist, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom and called for repentance. Like Elijah, Jesus demonstrated supernatural power and even had that power to heal people. Perform miracles. And like Jeremiah, Jesus wept over Israel, spoke with prophetic power, and called God's people back into right relationship with Yahweh. But all of these answers is inadequate because they relegate Jesus to the same category as these flesh and blood prophets of old. Both in Jesus' day and in ours, many have considered and do consider to this day Jesus of Nazareth to be a great spiritual sage, a prophet, or even a worker of miracles. But Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is greater than Jeremiah, greater than Elijah or John, or just a prophet. So as Jesus often does he turns the question away from popular opinion and what the crowds say, looks his disciples and you and I by association, if you're a follower of Jesus and says to us, but who do you say that I am? And right then and there, something miraculous happens in this story. Now, granted, it's not the Red Sea kind of miracles where it blows us away. But you need to know, something miraculous happens in this story. And it's easy to miss because it looks like on the surface that Peter simply answers the question that Jesus poses and replies, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But River West, friends, here's what you need to know. This answer wasn't just a great theologically accurate reply. Peter gets an A plus, okay? This is a great theological reply. He doesn't just say, Jesus, you're the son of God. That would have been an incredible reply. An incredible reply that he is the son of God, the son of man, that the prophet Daniel prophesied. He gets an A Plus, there's theological precision in his answer that he's the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed, long-awaited king of Israel, the son of the living God. This is an incredible answer. If you're taking notes, this is good theology right here coming out of Peter's mouth. And he doesn't always bat perfect, okay? Okay. He, there's a lot of swing and miss like moments, you know? Hey, Jesus, should I set up tents for like you and Elijah? No, like, no, you don't understand what you're talking about. Okay. Peter right here, this isn't human Peter answering Jesus with a great flesh and blood theological answer. It was actually a divine revelation given to Peter from the heavenly father, pouring out of Peter's mouth, which is why Jesus responds to Peter's confession by telling him, blessed are you. Simon Marjona, for flesh and blood, has not revealed this to you. But my father in heaven, a miracle has just happened. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I'll build my church. The rock is the divine revelation of the gospel. It is Peter's supernaturally inspired confession of faith about who Jesus is. The rock is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. The news that opens up blind eyes to the identity of the long-awaited Messiah named Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Friends, there's no other foundation that can steady the church through every storm in history and set captives free from the power of sin and death. Jesus and only Jesus, our rock and firm foundation, can do that. Amen? Amen. Finally, after revealing what the church is and what the church is built on, Jesus ends this exchange with his disciples by showing us what the church is built for. And as we'll see, Jesus has founded his church on the rock, not just to call his people to himself, to summon a holy people that will live differently and be called out. But Jesus has sent his church into the world with a divine mission. Now, to be honest, this is the hard part right here, because as a pastor, we could preach an entire sermon on what this mission entails, and here's the good news. There's going to be an entire sermon in this series devoted to what Jesus' mission is, which makes me happy as a mission pastor, okay? So, but for now, I want to actually show you two marks of this church sent on mission that come out from this passage. If we pay close attention to these words from Christ, it shows us where he's sending his church and what Jesus is sending his church with. First we see, where is Jesus sending his church? What kind of places is Jesus sending his church to? In Matthew chapter 16, in the first verse, it's easy to read over details like this, but But the setting of this exchange is actually critical to consider. It actually changes the entire reading, understanding that this exchange took place in the district of Caesarea Philippi. In verse 13, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Here's what you need to know about Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles from the very religious communities that are marked around Galilee. But in Caesarea Philippi, this was not a religious city at all. In fact, its practices were vastly different from the very conservative nearby towns. It was like the red light district of Galilee, if you will. Much like Portland, Caesarea Philippi was a city that was infamous for sin, for sexual immorality, for temple prostitution, and a thoroughly unapologetic Greco-Roman pagan lifestyle. Having visited and had the incredible privilege and opportunity in in my 20s to go to Israel, and visit Caesarea Philippi, of all the places I saw, this place actually stuck with me. I think we have a slide and a picture of Caesarea Philippi. So when we were there, I remember the tour guide for us. We had a couple different tour guides. The tour guide that took us to this place, his name was Bear. I remember that because that was a really unusual name he led us on this tour and he explained how water used to flow out of the mouth of that massive cave that set up against this huge, huge cliff. And what you need to know that the citizens of Caesarea Philippi commonly believed that the fertility gods that lived in the underworld during the winter would come, come up And out when springtime happened and that the water was a sign of these gods that would travel from the underworld into the world. Now, just to be clear, because this is online, we don't believe that at River West Church. This was just pagan myth and religion. They believed that the water flowing out of here was a gateway into the underworld and they called it the gates of hell. They called, so Jesus, connect the dots, travels way out of the way into the red light district of Galilee with his disciples to tee up this whole exchange in order to teach us something about the nature and the foundation and the mission of the church. Hold all of that historical context, okay? Okay. Here's what you need to know. The citizens in Caesarea Philippi, they worshipped a goat god named Pan. And each year, the citizens, they would engage in horrible, detestable deeds. I'm not even going to say some of them, but they're lewd and they were gross and they involved weird things between human and goats. There's little ones in the air. There's little ears. I'm not even going to get into it. It was weird and it was wrong. So I imagine as Jesus' disciples are traveling with him, into this area, the district of Caesarea Philippi, they're really uncomfortable. In fact, I can see James, like, turning to John and saying, you can't tell mom and dad about this. <laughs> like, like, we are not supposed to be here, like, in the city of Pan, like we're actually going to like the gates of hell. This is literally a city that was knocking on the doors of hell. And yet of all the places to tee up this exchange where Jesus says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell, the powers of hell, cities like this will not prevail against it. River West, Jesus has not called his church to live in a bunker and simply shelter ourselves from an evil, immoral, increasingly pluralistic, pagan world. He has sent us in no uncertain terms to storm the gates of hell. That's what he sent his church to do. I know that may sound intense, and it is, but it's exegetically correct. And here's what you need to know. We are not sent on this divine mission in our own power and resources. Jesus has given us as his church, as followers of Christ, everything we need for this mission. And it's right there in verse 19. In verse 19, Jesus tells his disciples, and I will give you, you who make me your rock, your foundation, you build your life on me, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You know, I walk around and you probably see me week to week. I have a lot of keys. Some may say too many keys, but of the keys I have, I have been given and I have been entrusted with some of the most important keys. The keys to this church. I have keys that unlock doors that, that you can't unlock without a key. I have keys to closets. I have keys to offices. I have I have keys. But they're not really my keys, actually. They were given to me. The access was given to me. And here's what you need to know. I want you to think about this. Jesus has given you access in his kingdom to the most precious thing in the world. The keys to his kingdom, you know what it is, folks? He's given us the gospel. It's all about the divine revelation of the gospel. It's not about Peter in this passage. It's not about you and I and our ability to, like, endure The rock is the divine foundation of the gospel. What are the keys to the kingdom? It's the gospel. It's the truth and the proclamation of Jesus. What unlocks hearts and sets captives free? Guess what? Not this guy up here. But you know what? Jesus Christ has entrusted me with a key. I have the same key, and you have the same key. In Jesus' kingdom, everybody gets a key. Everybody gets a key. You have a key. Your key, guess what? Your key could be shinier than mine. My key, it looks pretty pathetic. It doesn't matter. The key is a key. You take the gospel, you share it with faith. The Holy Spirit, just like the Holy Spirit did in this story with Peter, does something miraculous. Hearts are open, lives are changed. Folks, let's use our keys in this season. Christ has given us the keys to the kingdom of heaven, not to put them in our pocket not to be ashamed of those keys, wear them, wear them like me. You know, it's, this is kind of, my kids say that I look really dweeby. You know what I mean? It's like, so I don't forget them. Okay. Like just use the keys because there's no other key. And guess what folks, our world is in desperate need of people that are willing to share the good news of Jesus. Amen. I mean, to have the worship team come up here. This morning, as they do, I just want to conclude our time by reminding you of something that's going to tee up for us communion. Communion this morning, the way that we celebrate and we use that key, if Christ is your Lord and Savior, He's your firm foundation. This morning, I would invite you, even if that key is just opening your heart for the first time, to come to the table to receive the, the cup. and the bread. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to sing about and reflect on how this great truth has power to set us free. Hear these words from Jesus Christ from the book of Revelation and let this and these living words this morning remind you how great your Savior is. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. As the Lord moves your heart, come receive the elements, hold on to them. And I'll come back up and lead us in a communion prayer this morning. Let's worship the Lord.